Hello, friends. We are back with episode 148 of the Our Wiki Highlights podcast. We're coming to you from our respective uh, frigid areas here in the U.S., but we hope we can heat you up a little bit with some fun R content, as always, coming straight from the latest issue on rweekly.org. My name is Eric Nance, and I'm delighted to join us from wherever you are around the world. And keeping warm in his abode there is my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? Doing great, Eric. Go Lions. How about the Lions? Go Lions. For those that aren't aware, the the Detroit Lions have had a um, bit of a struggle in really doing anything successful for many, many, and I do mean many years in the football landscape, but they won their first playoff game in 31 years, folks. That's a long time. I was, um, I'm not going to date myself too much, but let's just say I was quite younger back then. And it was, um, yeah, who knew that it would take that long to get back there, but the, the Ford Field was rocking, and as a Michigander all my life, it was um, I could see why fans are crying in the stands. That was a moment, folks, and they're not stopping. They got another game this weekend, so we'll see what happens. Keep it rolling. Keep it rolling, baby, and we're going to keep this podcast rolling as well because we got another awesome issue to talk about that's curated by the esteemed Colin Fay. By this point, you know who he is if you listen to the show just a little bit. For those that aren't aware, he is at Think R, and he does awesome R packages in the shiny space, such as Golem, which we use quite a bit in our day-to-day. But as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow R Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world with your awesome poll requests and suggestions. And first, um, on our highlights today... As we told you many times before, it is a new age, so to speak, in computing, and it's gone are the days where you have to rely on just getting your data from CSVs in a random place all the time or having to deal with other proprietary platforms or services. Now there is the wonder of APIs for you to access these services programmatically. And our first holiday is a great tutorial on a recent refresh, if you will, of a very important package in this space of using R to call these APIs very quickly and efficiently. And in particular, Melissa Van Basso, who is an associate statistician at Statistics Canada, and she makes a lot of R videos about R programming and statistics, and that's literally one of her taglines in her channel called GG Not. And if you haven't bookmarked it, you should, because she pumps out a lot of terrific content on a very regular basis, uh, very inspiring. Her latest video is an aforementioned tutorial, quick but straight to the point, practical tutorial on working with APIs using HTTR2. And she sets the stage by putting on some nice analogies about how APIs with respect to security works because most of the time, these APIs, yeah, they may technically be free to use and some are not, But one way or another, you need to authenticate to them in some way, shape, or form. This can be very confusing to people, but she walks through two examples. One, using OpenAI's API for, you guessed it, um, an image generation uh, request. But also, something that I hope gets more spotlight in in the R ecosystem these days, is the API for GitLab. For those that aren't aware, GitLab is somewhat analogous to GitHub, only it is free and open source, at least open core. And a lot of people are turning to that to self-host their version control repositories. And in fact, many organizations use that as well within their firewalls to give them that robust Git-like hosting platform. 
but under their control. But they have an API as well. So she walks through two examples, again, using those respective APIs and how to authenticate to them with HTTR2. And this is where you will have to inject some authorization magic, but there is a function in HTTR2 to do just that. But it is interesting that she selected two examples because not every company behind these APIs is going to have the exact same syntax for authentication. And in fact, these two services do require slightly different request uh, language or request structure in that authorization header, if you will. And the good news is this video does have an associated GitHub repo where she walks through the um, example very clearly. And you can quickly get a get a glance at it. It's only about 50 lines or so. But you can see the different headers that she has to inject in these various APIs. Now, the best situation, of course, is if there is an R package that actually wraps this API that you're interested in. She's very upfront with the fact that in real-world usage, you might want to leverage that particular package instead of building something up yourself. But again, this is a tutorial for how HTTR2 works. So it's very great to see these, um, this example here. And honestly, once you get the authentication down, that's kind of like more than half the battle, so to speak. And trust me, I've been there. I've had some wicked wars of authentication in the past. But at that point, the other interesting nuance between these examples is the type of request that you're about to send. With respect to the GitLab API, she's interested in grabbing issue summaries. And that is facilitated by what we call a Git request. You're not really putting anything else in your request kind of transmit to the API service other than a various parameter or set of parameters in the URL of that actual request. Whereas for the OpenAI example, she actually has to do what's called a post request, which is saying that you as a submitter of that request have to tell the API something about what you want or supply some important information. And in this case, it's the prompt of what kind of image she wants to generate. And of course, we love animals here on this podcast. So she has a prompt of a cute baby sea otter, insert penguins or whatever your favorite animal is. You could probably do that too. But that has to be a post request. That's not through the URL itself. So again, most of these APIs will have documentation some maybe better than others on how to handle these requests and whether it's a get request or a post request. But oftentimes when you're kind of like doing a query of what's out there, most of the time that's going to be a post request of some sort. But in the end, once you get the results back, you're going to get some nice, um, maybe not so nice, a uh, list of the results. Often it's being compiled from JSON from the API itself and HTTR2 will have a friendly wrapper to say, okay, this is a, re a, a request coming back in JSON format, but I'm going to translate that back to a list. And then it's up to you to wrangle that list afterwards. So that's more of an exercise for you to play with at the end here. But she does show a couple of examples of how you can subset this nested list for the various parameters, like the title of that issue or a milestone or other information such as the URL of that image that's being generated from OpenAI. That's where there are other packages in the R ecosystem that can definitely help with wrangling lists. Mike and I love the per package for a lot of these situations. 
There are other interesting ones where it turns a nested list into a nested data frame. I've seen that mentioned in the past. There's lots of ways to post-process this. But again, half the battle is just getting authenticated to this and then leveraging HTTR2's new pipeable syntax to kind of build this step-by-step, the request process as a whole. So if you're new to it, definitely start with this package. HTTR itself came before it, and I used it extensively back in the day. But if you're comfortable with the tidyverse, you're comfortable with pipeline processing, this is going to be a very nice fit for you as you get involved in this landscape. And I can speak as a package author, albeit a very um, low-key package, that HTTR2 was very easy to work with. My package called PodIndexR, which is interfacing the Podcast 2.0 API from R, leverages HTTR2 under the hood. So I did authentication via the mechanisms that she talks about here. I do want to mention one thing, though. Never, ever put your authentication keys in your script itself. And this is obviously a very brief example, but in real practice, environment variables are your friends here. So definitely take a look at that. That's also documented in HTTR2's package vignettes if you're curious about how that lingo works. But one thing that trips a lot of people up at the day job If you're updating your environment variables, maybe you generated a fresh token for that service or whatnot, you gotta restart that R session first because it will not take effect until you do. And I've had more than a few calls, a few messages on our teams at work of, I changed my GitHub GitHub API PAT and it's not working, help. And I'm like, did you restart your session? Oh, so don't (laughs) just, just, it, it happens folks. It happens to the best of us. And yes, it's happened to me even at this um, experience level of APIs that just trips you up, especially the AWS ones. I'm going to be started on that. But nonetheless, this was an awesome, straight-to-the-point tutorial. It's an easy watch, maybe 15 minutes at the most, and Melissa has a bunch of other terrific tutorials on his, on her channel, so definitely have a look at that. Yeah, this was probably my first, that I can remember, introduction to Melissa, and she does a phenomenal job like you said eric in this quick nice 15 minute youtube post about how to work with the new httr2 package and and i do really like the the beauty of the pipeable syntax as you sort of build up either this get or post request uh and, and then finally execute that and yeah i just can't speak highly enough about how well uh, melissa really articulates every step of the process you know why she's writing the code that she is particular syntax um things that you can get hung up on such as having to to quote uh or back tick essentially different pieces of the uh the, the request that you are sending to make sure that you know r isn't uh, unable to to find certain objects because you're not quoting those and things like that she she does a really nice job better than i could ever uh explaining exactly how to build up these get and post requests using httr2 i'm really thrilled that we have the httr2 package uh now out and available and battle tested um so i i would highly recommend folks who have been using httr uh to to take a look and see if it makes sense to switch over to HTTR2, I think you'll find some gains in efficiencies, um, some gains in uh, just sort of the, the syntax style and things like that that might make your life a little bit easier. And I think, you know, a big key uh, to these packages is they help developers as well 
create our packages that serve as wrappers to APIs, right? That make everybody's life easier. Um, so if you're somebody that you know has an API out there that you really want to create an R package around to make other people's life easier, interacting with that that data source or, or whatever that API serves, uh, maybe the HTTR2 package will help you do that more easily. I believe in the past with HTTR, um, there have been vignettes and articles and things like that on how to develop an R package that wraps an API. So I'd be curious to see. I haven't haven't checked, but maybe we can put it in the show notes to see if there's sort of an updated version of that documentation using the HTTR2 package uh, for wrapping your favorite API. But again, a great walkthrough, really nice examples here, one with a get request and one with a post request that sort of run the gamut of all the different types of, of APIs that you may be working with. So can't speak highly enough about Melissa if you're interested in taking a look at some of her other content. Um, she has her own website at melissavanbusel.com. So check it out. Yeah. And um, yeah, follow up to your quick question there. Yes, HTTR2 does have a vignette exactly tailored to wrapping API. So definitely wonderful reading. I read it literally four or five times as I was writing my little pod index R package um, to, to handle this. So it was very thorough, very um, straightforward. And again, touches on those those nitty gritties like authentication and managing managing those effectively. But it's got two examples using the New York Times API for books as well as GitHub GIST API. So again, it's great to have two different examples because it's almost like no a- no two APIs do things similarly. There's always some little minor differences here and there. And we're definitely seeing that now with HTTR2 recently um, celebrating its 1.0 release, another, I think, reason why Melissa made this video, this is kind of the unofficial or somewhat official signal that this, like you said, is is tested by many people it's ready to go and to augment your api workflows we're seeing some other packages in this kind of ecosystem area of api um you know linking wrangling and now testing that are basing their work on HTTR 2 as well so it's definitely becoming your go-to i think for a lot of the api um, operations in r itself and i'd imagine we're going to see more packages in the ecosystem start to wrap this um more fully as they you know find more apis that just haven't been helped by the community just yet so yeah wonderful tutorial and it was a thrill to meet melissa in person at the posiconf um, back in in the fall last year um yeah she very personable and very humble and yeah really great to to see her turn through this terrific content and dare we say we we hope you keep it up and um there was even, I remember looking at her LinkedIn post announcing this video. Someone had the request, hey, have you ever thought about doing a live stream of your live coding? She <laughs> Sounds like she's not saying no to it. But uh, Melissa, if you're listening, if you want a buddy to help you along that, wink, wink. I'll just say that. <laughs> who knows? Hey, who knows? And to double down on your best practices, Eric, put your API keys as environment variables in a .r environ file and get ignore that thing immediately immediately folks yep because um you heard my rant maybe a year and a half ago somebody did not do that and we were uh ding pretty badly at the tape job security group when they discovered that so yeah you've got to be careful there folks got to be careful well mike we were just saying how things are becoming more normal for us as we're getting you know the, the 2024 season of our weekly highlights up and running 
Well, one thing we didn't really have as much last time around was a great post around visualizations. And sure enough, that that's been normalized to this week, if you will, because friend of the show, Albert Rapp is back to the highlights and for his first uh, contribution to 2024, where he has both a blog post and an accompanying video talking about five of his favorite ggplot2 extensions as we mentioned many times in highlights before ggplot2 is not just about ggplot2 the package itself because of the extension system that it introduced a few years ago now the community can take ggplot2's functionality and supercharge it in many and i do mean many different ways and this roundup of extensions is a great tour de force to just see what it exactly is capable of. And the blog post is quite visual, as you would expect, so we'll do our best to summarize it here. But right off the bat, one easy win for you as you think about annotations in your plots, as you think about formatting maybe your subtitles or your titles or access labels or whatnot, have a look at the GG text package. This is one that has been mentioned in previous highlights before. This is authored by Claus Wilk. Um, we'll have a link to all these packages in the, in the show notes as well. But this is a very quick way for you to augment that existing text that you want to put on your plot with HTML syntax or Markdown syntax. So you're living the Cordal lifestyle, the R Markdown lifestyle, or maybe your Shiny app styling. You can do that same kind of thing in ggplot2 as well. ggtext just does this very well, very elegantly. And if you're if you're comfortable with Markdown, which many people are these days, it is a terrific fit for you on on your ggplot2 builds as well. And with a low HTML knowledge, the sky's the limit for what you can do in these annotations, in these textual representations. So must have, I would say, as you think about getting those plots in a more publication-ready state. Speaking of multiple plots, one thorn in my side many, many years early in my ggplot2 exploits was the fact that, you know, I had these two plots. Maybe they were, they were talking about the same domain, the same type of data, but they were completely different. But yet I wanted to compose them in such a way to arrange them so they fit on a single page or whatnot. I've had a lot of battles with grid.draw and other situations like this, but Patchwork, the R package by Thomas Lynn Peterson, software engineer at Posit, is a terrific way to take almost any type of ggplot and compose multiple ones together using a very intuitive you know, syntax that's native to ggplot2 itself with the plus operator, just kind of combining the two you can stack them up with the, the, the slice or the fraction operator if you want. But there's a lot more customizations to say take one facet, make it big wide, maybe two plots below that that are sharing the space equally between each other. This has been asked for me at the day job to help bring recommendations to this because oftentimes we'll have, like I said, these plots that are doing kind of different things but yet using the same data and they tell kind of different stories. So having in patchwork is so helpful to just customize a layout without a lot of fuss around it. So very, very helpful if you're in that situation like I've been many years ago. I'm having a lot of flashbacks to par MF row, which I Dude. 
Oh, dude, yes, many, many. My dissertation was full of that. Yes. It was a nightmare it's to debug. A lot of college flashbacks for me. <laughs> yep, yep. We didn't, we didn't expect that, but every time we do this show, we always have flashbacks of some sort. Just didn't expect that one. But um, moving on to more uh, pleasant memories or things I wish I had known about before, um, sometimes you want to really get you know customizable with the types of patterns that you want to put in the geomes that you, you know, surface in these plots, maybe a gradient or maybe a little fun like symbol or, or an image that you want to facet into a bar chart like setup. The next package that Albert highlights is GG Pattern. GG Pattern is authored by Mike FC. You probably know him as cool but useless on the various social spheres. And this is a very excellent package that lets you simply figure uh, specify either geometric or image type patterns to fill in your various geomes, such as bar charts, such as you know line charts or, or things like that. And then Albert and his example here on the post has a fun little representation of coffee bean uh, quantities uh, for for different countries in South America, but using a little coffee icon in this waffle chart type setup. Um, that was really interesting, the things you can do with GG patterns. So again, this might be great for those of you who are trying to build infographic type setups or GG plot. This might be a great fit for you. And again, combining that with things like GG text, uh, the sky's the limit once again. And then the next one we have here is kind of a potpourri or a, a collection of kind of utility type extensions and this is off this is called gg force offered by the aforementioned thomas lynn peterson he's been in the gg plot 2 game for many years and this package i believe came out not too long after the extension kind of paradigm or system was introduced in gg plot 2 so gg force lets you do a whole bunch of random oper uh, random type geomes that maybe are not quite the same kind of design choices as someone like Hadley has thought about for ggplot2. But if you want to create bars like a bar chart with an arc or a circle geom, which is great for obviously things like pie charts or donut charts and the like, there's lots of interesting uh, geoms you can augment in your existing visualizations. And ggforce has a whole bunch more but again, to Albert's credit, he's got a fun little tutorial linked in this same blog post. And um, he created donut charts and pie charts with GGForce. Again, lots of opportunities to combine this and really tailored, again, maybe for that infographic type setup with the alternative geomes that it offers. And last but certainly not least, we've got bump charts, which are becoming a lot more common these days as I look at visualizations, and that is offered by the GG Bump package. That is authored by David Schoberg, and we'll have a link again to all these packages in the show notes. This is another great utility type ggplot2 extension. Does one thing, does it well. And his example that Albert puts in here is looking at flight tracking for European flights across various countries. And the trends that you see over time, it, it's very easy to see kind of the performance or you might say the longitudinal profile of these. And again, I don't do a lot of these in my day-to-day -day job, but I think this is still something that you might 
be able to augment pretty nicely with another package like GG Highlight to really facet in on one particular country's um, trend in flight patterns or flight rankings as well. That Again, that's just five extensions in this massive ecosystem of ggplot2 there's there's just so much to choose from albert does a great job of giving you five quick hits that i think can augment your visualizations very well in your day-to-day work and he's got links to other areas where he's put these in practice so he's he's been doing a lot in this space we we met albert um at, at posiconf and he is turning around the visualization content quite a bit He's very excited about it, and I believe he even has a short course that he's authored as well. So definitely be on the lookout for that as well. Yeah, I really enjoy these, you know, sort of digestible visualization posts from Albert. And I guess two things that really stood out to me, you know, as as someone who has to provide clients with a lot of deliverables, uh, you know, especially non-technical folks at the end of the day, is the text customization in, in GG text, you know, allowing you to write HTML essentially inside your string and to be able to, to bold text, to, to change the color of text, things like that on your, your charts, I think goes a long way towards communicating really the central idea around your data and the visualization that you've created and what you are trying to uh, convey to the end audience. And then the other the other one that really stands out to me for very similar reasons is going to be the GG highlight package as well, which admittedly I haven't used enough, but it, it's incredibly simple in, in terms of the syntax that you can use to highlight a particular element of your chart uh, on this bump chart that Albert has created, you know, the the first argument in that is a dplyr filter kind of like syntax where he's he's saying state double equals sign United Kingdom uh, because the line for the United Kingdom's flights is the one that he wants to highlight in green and all of the other ones are going to be sort of in this in this soft gray in the background and it's really one or two lines of code to be able to do that and highlight this particular line and set all the others to this background gray color. And it stands out so beautifully on the chart and it, it really demonstrates, you know, the the key concept that Albert's trying to display, which is, is show the end user, the UK's uh, trend from 2016 to 22 of incoming and outgoing flights. And if the end audience wants to also look at the data for the other five countries in this chart, they can because it's there. It's just sort of abstracted a little bit into the background um, to make the point and make the readers focus uh, on the United Kingdom. So really cool uh, blog post by Albert. He always does a great job, including not only the, the charts and his rationale behind them, but also the code behind everything. I recently had a use case where I wanted to essentially take the, I had a uh, flipped axis chart and I wanted to take the values on the x-axis and put them within the bars and the first place that I looked was a on Albert's website and of course I came across a blog post where he was doing exactly that and it made my plot a little bit bigger because I was able to sort of exclude the x-axis itself and put those values right on the bars so that they really stand out to the end user and they don't have to sort of line up uh, the bar width to the corresponding x-axis value. They can just see it right at the end of the bar. And uh, it, it was all thanks to Albert who made my life really easy. 
in order to be able to accomplish that. So thanks to him again for continuing to churn out this great visualization content and expecting more of the same in, in 2024. Yeah, I think a lot of these visuals you see here would fit really nicely if you're making any kind of business intelligence dashboard setup or other content where you've got to push the envelope a little bit after that standard type of visualization. I can see this uh, this set uh, being quite valuable in in this space and yeah the syntax to to wrangle these packages are all doing a terrific job of if you're familiar with ggplot2 you're going to feel right at home in putting these geomes in practice so that user experience from a you know a, a content you know creator standpoint of graphs you want to make sure you're not like content shifting so much as you use these alternative geomes so i think this is this is a great showcase of if you're comfortable with this language, you're going to you're going to feel right at home with the various extensions that you can push here. And man, that GG text package, though, that is such an underrated gem in this space. I can't believe I didn't use it sooner, but better late than never. Same here. <laughs> yep. And one thing we don't want you to be late about our last highlight is, is more of a friendly call to action here because you all know Mike and I are fans of the Shiny ecosystem. We talk about it quite a bit on this very show and our other endeavors. And yes, the Shiny Conference for 2024 is coming up this April, April 17th through the 19th. And like the years before, it is all virtual, but it is definitely expanding the footprint, so to speak, with not one, not two, not three, but four exciting tracks of talk. And of course, first off is that the early bird registration is open. So we'll have links to the registration page in the show notes to get you get your early bird tickets available there. But in the aforementioned tracks, we have four tracks that you're gonna be learning about. One of them is the Shiny Innovation Hub. And this is really looking at what are the latest developments, best practices and creative uses of Shiny within the ecosystem itself using very novel approaches for problem solving. And that is being um, chaired by Jacob Nowitzki, who is the lead lab lead at Absalon. He is chairing that track. The next track we have is Shiny and Enterprise. I dare say Mikey might know a little bit about that, as do I a little bit. Um, that is how Shiny is being used to transform and shape outcomes in the business sector. So going beyond analytics, looking at enhancing efficiency, helping decision making and elevating these data, data analytic processes. Lots of great material there, I'm sure. And that is being chaired by Maria Grushik, who is Senior Delivery Manager at Absalon. And this one hits a little close to home. This is the Shiny Life Sciences track because Shiny's been big in pharma and, and health in general for quite a few years now. This track is being chaired by yours truly here, and we're looking for application or talks that highlight ways that Shiny's been driving insights, enhancing drug development, enhancing collaboration within life sciences. And I dare say there's been a lot discussed in this field for quite a few years but there's no shortage of new innovations happening here and then lastly we got the shiny for good track looking at ways that shiny is being used to help make positive impacts to the communities around the world for society really looking at how they are helping these initiatives out there and this is being chaired by good friend john Harmon. Um, this is really important to see where Shiny can be used to help social impact, 
driving positive change, you know, really helping the diverse communities all around the world, you know, supercharge their efforts. And I'm being more detailed about these tracks because we have calls for talks ongoing. We have until February 4th to send your submission for a talk and the submission form will be linked in the show notes as well. So I know I speak probably on behalf of the other leaders of these tracks. We're looking for really exciting talks in this space and don't ever feel like you have to be this huge pro at shiny to give an awesome talk. Really. I've seen some amazing talks from people just getting new to shiny, but using it in an innovative way that is totally unexpected, but yet really helping their efforts. So really encourage you. If you've been using shiny to help innovate your workflows, um, definitely send a proposal. We'd love to see it. And definitely get registered for early bird registration because this conference has been quite popular over the years and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Well, I'm super excited for this conference again this year, Eric. I think I've been attending it ever since they hosted the first one, maybe three years ago now at this point, something like that. Um, and it's it's one of my favorites, uh, obviously. We don't hide it very well on this podcast that we love Shiny, and I am thrilled to see what's put together thus far across the different tracks. Thrilled to see you up there, Eric. I think the Shiny and Life Sciences will get a ton of buzz. We're seeing that space grow and grow and grow across our own client base, and I don't think uh, across the rest of the world is any exception as well. So I've purchased early bird tickets for our team and I finally just began the submission process for a shiny for good uh, app showcase. So I'm going to finish that up today, see if I can push that through, uh, see if see if maybe it makes the cut, but mostly I'm excited to see what everybody else has to offer for this conference. So no reason not to tune in, check it out. It's free for students. It's it's only a few dollars uh, for everybody else, and it's absolutely worthwhile if you are somebody interested in Shiny, doing Shiny, beginner, intermediate, advanced. doesn't make a difference. You will get something out of this conference. You sure will, and that's a really exciting point, Mike, is that on top of talks themselves, we love these app showcases. You've done that before with a great app before, and it's it's really great ways to demonstrate where shiny is being used in practice so yeah we highly encourage you to sign up for it and also like i said if you want to share your knowledge share ways that shiny has been brought innovation in your work yeah we love to hear about it and with these four tracks we think we have something for everybody here so there no matter which industry you're representing no matter which part of academia you're a part of or any other research or community effort We'd love to hear about it. And I'm really looking forward to reviewing these talk proposals in a, in a few weeks. Um, and judging by what happened last year, both John and I had a very hard time narrowing down, you know, which ones made the cut because there was a lot of great submissions last year. And I expect this to be exactly the same. And really looking forward to working with the Absalon team on helping organize this as we get closer to the conference days. And yeah, should be a lot of fun. Speaking of a lot of fun, folks, the rest of the issue does have a lot of fun for you to, to look at with leveling up your R knowledge and innovations, what's happening in the world of data science and respect to package development, you know, tutorials and whatnot. And we'll take a couple minutes to talk about our additional finds here. I'm going pretty niche on this, but it's a very important niche, especially for someone I work with quite closely. 
Um, you've heard me um, speak the praises of what Will Landau has been doing with the Targets ecosystem and more lately the crew package for batch processing, asynchronous processing in the R ecosystem. And that is standing on the shoulders of two very important packages in the R ecosystem, Mirai and Nano Next, which have just been updated on CRAN with some very important updates in this space for respect to where Will wants to take the crew package down the road. And in particular, the latest update for Mirai is now handling much more gracefully situations when someone needs to terminate a running job for whatever reason. There are some enhancements to the daemon behind the scenes to help make that a lot more elegant, a lot more graceful than in times past. And this is very helpful as you think about the ways that batch processing can be launched on other backends. I'm looking at you, AWS. That's one of them we got our eyes on quite a bit. And the associated package Nano Next um, is also kind of the system library that Mirai is based on. That also has some important updates as well. But again, these were very important updates for what Will's trying to do with the crew package down the road. So he was he was telling me in my ear last week that yeah, he's really looking forward to these updates and he's got some big plans now that now that these have hit Cran. So Really, um, big thanks to Charlie Gao, who's the maintainer of these packages. Um, really, really excited to see these updates here. Mike, uh, what did you find? I found a pretty cool, also niche blog post on something that I hadn't really seen discussed very much before, and it's called Security Headers for Shiny Applications. It's a Jumping Rivers post, I think specifically authored by Colin Gillespie, and it's all about essentially profiling the security on the server or or your posit setup wherever your Shiny apps are deployed. Um, There are some functions from a package called server headers that allow you to sort of check the security around that server, um, such as SSL status, uh, redirects, referrer policies, all sorts of things like that. So if you are someone interested in uh, information security around your Shiny apps, and perhaps you're working with your IT team to host Shiny apps or deploy those Shiny apps on some uh, local or cloud-based server, I think it might be of interest for you to, to take a look at this blog post um, because there's probably not a, a lot of other content out there that might be beneficial you know, for your IT team to sort of understand uh, how Shiny apps are, are hosted and deployed on a server and, and maybe the different security things that go along with securing that server in particular. So really cool one from Jumping Rivers, uh, nice and short and sweet and check it out. Yeah, excellent find. And, you know, as Shiny obviously takes more, you know, to, has a more uptake in the industry as a whole, a lot of times IT groups are, are getting more familiar, especially on the, the teams of security, on making sure that authors of Shiny apps are following best practices and whatnot. This might very well help those that are deploying Shiny-based server products in their organizations to have a little have a little preview of what's being exposed under the hood. So yeah, certainly great, great to see that space. Uh, it's great to see developments from Jumping Rivers in that space as well. And certainly speaking of uh, really loving to hear back, we'd love to hear back from all of you and your feedback. And we got a couple somewhat indirect uh, feedback pieces to share. One direct that literally just came as we're recording this. But um, you, if you listen to last week's episode, uh, Mike and I had some, uh, I would say, quite candid thoughts on 
the situation that Posit's found itself in and particularly Huaycia's uh, recent situation. Um, we're going to put a quick plug to and a shout out to Matt Dre in his recent blog post. Um, he has basically a huge appreciation for what Iwe's done for the work he does in, in his day job at the UK government and public sector. Um, but he gave a little shout out to, to me and Mike here about where we about our discussion about Heway's efforts. So thanks, Matt, for for um, putting that in your blog post. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. And literally, Mike, late-breaking feedback. It's almost as if he's psychic. But uh, John Harmon, we just mentioned, just shot me a note that with respect to APIs, which you touched on the first highlight here, he is writing a book about using APIs from R. Um, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's a... Uh, WAPIT.io. Um, we will link to that in the show notes. So thank you, John, for reminding me. I knew you you were hard at work at that. I didn't realize how far along it was. So well, if you're leveling up your API knowledge, um, there's your chance. <laughs> That's awesome. I totally forgot. I think John had been working on some sort of like one size fits all package or project for you know one particular R package that could wrap any API essentially, and, and do it in a fairly agnostic way. I, I don't know where that stands or, or if I'm remembering that incorrectly, and it's it's more about the book, but I am very excited to read that. Yeah, you're exactly right. He is definitely working in that space. That package you're referring to is called Beekeeper. Um, really fun package in this space because, hey, if anything can give you that, you know, what we like to call the use this or dev tools like setup to wrap these API APIs in the packages, I think Beekeeper is going to be a great, great way to do that. So I'm out to double check how far along it is, but we'll link to it in the show notes regardless. But he's been hard at work on that, I believe, ever since he received a grant from the R Consortium on this API development work recently. So yeah, John, uh, thanks for that uh, real-time feedback. You're you're lucky I had that, that page open as we were recording. I didn't realize that was coming through. So, yep, um, APIs. It's a great time being APIs with R. I'll just say that with what John's <laughs> awesome. doing and, and great tutorials from Alyssa and whatnot. So, of course, we love hearing from you as well, um, wherever you are in the world. We have various ways of doing that. You can get in touch with us on our contact page, which is linked directly in the show notes for each and every episode. Also, we love to get your contributions to the R Weekly Project via a pull request of, say, a new blog post, new package, new tutorial, and whatnot. Um, all the details are at rweekly.org. We, we love to hear that. We love to see that. All the curators really appreciate it when the community helps step up as well. And certainly we're looking for curators to join our team. Again, information on that is at rweekly.org and our GitHub repository. Um, we're trying to make things easier for us, but the best thing we could have is more people to help us with it. So if you're interested at all and you're passionate about this space, it would be a great time to reach out to us. And also, if you want to reach out to us on one of those fancy new podcast apps that you've downloaded, like Podverse, Fountain, CurioCast, or whatnot, they're all supporting the Boost technology. And that's an easy way for you to send us a message directly in the show and have a little fun along the way. You can find complete details on that in the show notes. And we are proudly linked on the podcast index page where you can boost directly from there as well. Again, I wrote a little package around its API and I got more stuff in store for that stuff coming up soon. So stay tuned. Maybe some more R content for this very show. Talk about meta, right? 
our content about a podcast to talk about on a podcast. That doesn't make your head spin. I don't know what does. <laughs> Inception. Inception overload. Yep. And, um, but yeah, we'd love to hear from you and, um, definitely, uh, you can get in touch with us on social medias as well. You'll find me mostly on Mastodon these days where I'm at our podcast at podcast index social, very sporadically on the X thingy, but also on LinkedIn from time to time. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Yeah, probably on LinkedIn primarily. I think my handle there is Michael J. Thomas two, uh, or you can search Catchbrook Analytics, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K to find me there. Uh, or if you want to find me on Mastodon, I am at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Very nice, Mike. Well, anyway, we will close up shop here for episode 148, and we will be back with another new episode next week. <laughs>